Welcome to the Hobby of a Lifestyle podcast, a show that looks at how our passions impact lives and drive career choices. I'm Andy Gray, a former national and world champion kickboxer. During my shows, I'll be talking with athletes, coaches, fans and more as I delve into their world to find out what inspired them on their journey. Welcome back to another episode of Hobby of a Lifestyle. I'm really looking forward to today's guest, Chris Cook, former double Olympian and double Commonwealth champion. So let's get straight into his interview and find out more about his journey. Good afternoon, Chris. How are you this today? I'm good. Yourself? I'm excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for coming on Hobby of a Lifestyle podcast. Pleasure. Absolute pleasure. I've been looking forward to it. Oh, good. How's lockdown been treating you? Do you know what? The first week or two was a bit of a shock. I'm not going to lie. Personally, from business point of view, family, everyone took a bit of a hit. But and I, I was going to say 10 weeks in. I don't know what week it is. <laughs> I don't, it's 13 babies now. I'm not sure. I don't even know what day it is, Chris. Saturday. Saturday. Yeah, <laughs> I'm really enjoying it now. I've really accepted the challenge for what it is. I am personally, professionally, and and now I must admit, probably four weeks ago I started to get excited. So to answer that question, it's it's going good now. That's it is brilliant. going good. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Obviously, Chris, I'm really excited to have you on the program. And yeah. I, you know, I, I don't want to tell everybody. I've I've done that in the interview, but I want you to tell everybody what was your hobby growing up. Oh, I was um, I was a swimmer. That was a my swim. main hobby, if you like. Yeah, that was okay. And what what event did you specialize in? So my the the event that I specialized in, or the one that I absolutely adored, was the hundred meters breaststroke. I did the two hundred as well. Got the Olympics on that, but the one I really loved was the was the hundred. Also did the fifty as well. But I, I, I love that. Just yeah, I also went to the Olympics. And I, we're gonna build to that because I can't wait for you to tell your story about the Olympics and, and hear that. That's fantastic. How old were you when you started swimming? So, well, I learned to swim like many do quite young. Um, so around about the age of three, four, I started to go learning to swim. Yeah. Um, so it was around about the time that you start to join school in reception. Yeah, and of course. Um, but then when I really started to take an avid interest in it, it was just before my ninth birthday. Um, went to a swimming club, got a trial evening at South Tyneside Swimming Club down in South Shields Town Centre. And this really old crummy pool, um, Derby Terrace pool, and some of the people on the on the call might understand that um, that building. <laughs> right. Okay. It, it was iconic in South Shields, but it was iconic for some of the wrong reasons. I think um, <laughs> it wasn't the most attractive, but that's where I started. And right. I, I never forget walking in the change rooms for the first time, thinking, "I'm giving this 45 minutes, and then I'm off." <laughs> really. <laughs> then I must have just fallen in love with the with a sport even more and that was going to be my next question how old were you when you fell in love with the sport because we've had people on the show already who literally as soon as he started doing something that was it they had a passion for it and then we've had other people who said that actually they, they developed the love and the passion for the sport yeah i think mine happened my awareness of it happened really young i, I remember in distinctively my dad saying to us right come on it's time to get out of the water and i was really really young and in my mind, I'd been in the water for five minutes. We'd been in an hour and a half. Oh, and right. To get those bands. In. Yeah, yeah. We were blue band and we had to be out. And we were trying to hide the bands to That's stay amazing. in. Amazing. I love that. That is absolutely long. brilliant. So I'm assuming the trial went really well. It, and you, and you got did. accepted in. 
It did. I, I got into the I got into the club no bother and, and started meeting people that I really enjoyed spending time with. But yeah, it, it, it went really well. Once I got through the change rooms, got the other side, I realised I wasn't being marched to my death. I was actually <laughs> entering something quite nice. That's fantastic. And how old were you then when you started competing? Um, so I didn't start to compete until I was 11 stroke 12. You In swimming back then, you couldn't compete until a certain age. You can compete internally. Yeah. So against people in your own club, like inter-competitions, and you can maybe set up mock competitions. But, you know, the, the, for, for protecting children from getting too involved too early in those competitions, yeah. they tend to put an age barrier on it. Okay. So yeah, 11. 11 years old and... Um... How did it go? First competition, can you remember it? I can actually. Yeah, yeah. most people um, do. Yeah, I, I remember it, and I remember just I'm I'm a painful introvert. You see, Andy, I'm 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 better off on my own. I, I have no no desire to be in large groups. So to be on poolside indoors, stifling hot, smelling of chlorine, really loud. I don't know if you've been to a, a swimming competition before, but you get a couple of hundred people indoors, and it just echoes everywhere so for me it was a bit of a shock to the senses yeah Um, but i absolutely loved it i loved the challenge of just hitting that water and just leaving everything behind and yeah i can imagine once it once your head's underneath the water as well you drown out the crowd and you just focused on on winning that's That's amazing so you obviously you've stopped competing at 11 12 years old and in the clubs before that when was it when you realized actually you know, I'm not just good at this sport, but I'm very good at this sport. Oh, that's a really good question, that. It's a tough one. It happened in, in stages or phases, if you like. I, I remember around about the age of 15, um, people started to peel away. People started to drop off. So my ranking started to go up. <laughs> not because I got better, but because people started to drop out. Um, but actually what started to happen was I started to realise that this was doable. Something was shifting. Something was moving. And me, me national ranking started to move up. Nothing to write home about. Yeah, yeah. Started to move up. And then when I was 19, I received a letter in the post um, from British Swimming saying that I'd made a big team. Actually, I hadn't. Nine weeks later, they pulled me from the team because there was an administration error and I should oh, never have no. been on the list. Yeah. Wow. So first Great Britain call-up was was a bit of a naff one. Um, but what was really interesting was, for me, I took that as a signal, as I must be on somebody's radar. Yeah, of course. I took the positive from it and just thought, oh, do you know what, I'm on someone's radar. So that was it, the key turning point. And then in 2003, when I was 23, no, oh, 24, sorry, I made the Europeans team. So there was three key stages, 15, 19, and, and 23, when I made the wow. European champs, yeah. Oh, where were they at? That was in um, Dublin, in Ireland. We went oh, to Limerick for a training camp. And six months later, I was on the um, Athens Olympic team. So oh, I, wow. I didn't have much preparation of being on the Team GB, or yeah. the Great Britain team, before all of a sudden, bang, lights, camera, action. It was a big show. Do you think that that benefited you or hindered you? Because I, I sometimes think that, you know, getting called up and being naive to the whole process is it takes away that apprehension of going to a tournament. Yeah, it but, can and On other words, people can go the other way, so it's... True that. Do you know what? It's interesting because there's a programme called the Ambition Programme on um, Team GB run, and they take the next generation of Olympians to their uh, the, the Olympics that 
they aren't competing at, so the one okay. before they go. So yeah, if they're okay. identified as Paris potential, they'll be taking the Tokyo. Wow. Um, so th what they're trying to do there is trying to make the unfamiliar familiar so that the subconscious brain isn't overwhelmed when they get there. Of course, which yes. Which is great. But for me, what, what was really interesting was when, when I, I made the, the European team, but what was happening before that was I was very, very, it was very unique, this. I was in a cluster of swimmers, about five or six of us, who were all within the top 25 in the world within the wow. UK. Wow. So if I turned up at a, a competition for British universities, yeah. the standard of our race, if there was three of the guys out the five in there, there was almost a world-class event happening. Yeah, so wow. Couldn't just turn up and just rock out any old swim. You had to turn up and be on fire because those other five boys were. Yeah, no, that's absolutely amazing, isn't it? And I suppose it, it means that you don't necessarily have to leave the country to go and try and train with the best people to push your performance. That's it. So week on week, weekend after weekend, we were turning up and racing each other and, and eventually got to the stage where we're in the top 16 in the world. Wow. And, and when you were going to competitions, the plus side on that was when you got to these big meets and you got through, you were pretty much going into a final because yeah. you, you were of that standard. So whilst it was hard to break through, and it was, you know, I was at the back of the pack for a while of that five, I realized that all I needed to do was just keep leapfrogging. And when I get to that number one position, I'm going to be within a shout of medals and podium positions. Yeah, of course. Wow, that's a, yeah, it's a fantastic story. And we, I've talked about this with, with other people, not necessarily on the podcast, but just around the talent pool that the UK have. Yeah. Um, I think I've, I've said it on one of the, to, to an earlier episode, that I sometimes think that sport in the UK is done really poorly. Certainly when you look at the North Americans and how, how brash and in, in a, mm. such a positive way, though, they, they're not afraid. Yeah. To, if they're good at something, they're not afraid to say they're good at it, which then yeah. I love that attitude. You know, if arrogance can be justified, it then yeah, yeah it's 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 not arrogance it's just confidence and i love that but actually when yeah. you're saying that you know four or five of the top 16 in the world were actually from the uk it's right, just an amazing what's the standard in the in the uk at the moment then oh well you've got adam peter who's leading oh, the way yeah he is just he's a he must be fish it's phenomenal i mean yeah. what he's doing for the sport for young people is just it's it's inspiring and to see someone come through and just to give what he's given to the sport and laying behind is just going to echo for so long because he's he is now helping others believe that it is doable and we've always had a strong pe pedigree of breaststroke swimmers yeah. I, I was a breaststroke swimmer yeah. we go back um Adrian Moorhouse was a breaststroke swimmer David Wilkie breaststroke um Duncan Goodhue these are all household names yeah and and these are all people who come from the UK from Great Britain and, and that's really key is that I think it shows people that we can do it. I don't think it's anything genetic. No. I think it's just that we've practiced it, shown we can do it. And then other people coming through go, well, if he can do it, I can do it. Yeah, 100%. Is it, am I right in believing that Adam Peaty broke your record? Oh, he smashed it. He's obliterated. Yeah. But you, yeah, you were a British record holder for breaststroke. Is that right? So I was the first man to go under a minute in the 100 wow. meters breaststroke. So 59.88. But yeah, he's absolutely obliterated it and taken it on to that a, a yeah. whole new level. In fact, some of his times, but I don't think are going to be challenged in the next 20 years. Really, he's just, he, yeah. I mean, yeah, he must he must be part fish. He is absolutely phenomenal <laughs> athlete, isn't he? I mean, the way he moves through the water is just ridiculous. He is. Yeah. He's amazing. Yeah. He's a merman. He's, he's not even human. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. So when did you break the British record? 
So it was at the Olympic trials in 2008 in Sheffield around about April time, just around about Easter, um, leading into the Olympics. And that placed me in fifth in the world. And wow. it was within the top seven fastest times ever swum. That is um, a phenomenal. Yeah. And that must have been such a confidence boost going into an Olympic year. It was, yeah, it definitely was. And, you know, when I look at it, when I swam my individual race at the Olympics, I didn't get what I wanted. I was yeah. devastated by it. But four nights later, I got the chance to race in the relay. And that became my last ever race. Um, and I got over the disappointment of the individual event at the Olympics and laid down my fastest ever race. And that was the in the relay. We finished sixth. That was the race that Michael Phelps won his eighth gold medal. He was yeah. a lane up the way, creating history with that eighth gold medal. And I was in that race. And it, it took me a long time, Andy, to get to the point where I felt proud of that. Oh, yeah. Because I felt like I'd left failing. And it wasn't until... Mentality of an athlete, though, isn't it? You're, you're never happy. Yeah. With it. You know, you, you're, you're going for gold at the end of the day. And yeah. when you don't get the gold, it's, it is. But it, as you say, when you have time to reflect on these achievements later on, yeah. you know six in the world i know and that's where i achievement. you're yeah you're right and and i think when you reflect over your own shoulder that's when you get the true reflection yeah. when you reflect compared to others that's when you get the outside competition and that's a dangerous place to be that because that's like looking at facebook and seeing someone else's life look amazing and comparing how you feel inside <laughs> yeah, well yeah it is never matches up but when you reflect over your own shoulder and, and, and there needs to be that, especially when you come out of the sport. That transition is so hard. I help so many athletes now. I do a lot of coaching and mentoring. And, and leaving the sport behind was a massive loss of identity, loss of which direction they're going in, not knowing where their skills kind of match up, but also trying to keep almost a brave face on it and not, and not kind of bleed out a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I know. I, I um, totally understand. That reflection is really important. Oh, definitely. So, and I want to talk about the work you're doing at the moment as well, Chris, but let's go back because I, we definitely haven't hit on the highs of, of your swimming career so far. You know, we've, we've lightly touched on the Olympics there, but you're a British title holder. I'm assuming a British, a, a British title winner. Yeah. Yeah. So, so how old were you when you won your first British title? Oh, that's a good question. That I genuinely don't know the real answer. That I think it was... 2003 I think I won my first British title so it took me until my 20s uh, mid-20s to win it which is wow. really late in swimming really yeah. late but my my peak happened later and I just accepted that I just accepted the fact that I had a tough crowd to beat that were all yeah. in the top 16 in the world and I accepted that actually my my peak was happening later than most and yeah. I think once you accept something for what it is you can go with the ebb and flow of it yeah, oh, 100%. I think um, my, my best friend who was on the show last year, we uh, last year, sorry, last week, we talked about how we went around competing and he won all, he won all his tournaments in his late 20s. Um, yeah. But I, I had won mine in my early 20s, but it was yeah. just where peaks hit differently and maybe it's just the, the tournaments we went to, maybe I was a little bit more fortunate than what he was at the time or maybe mm. it's just developing a maturity for, for the game. Or yeah. for the sport, sometimes comes a little bit later, or learning in different ways. Standard. So, yeah, it's fine. I mean, so you're a, you're a British title holder. How many British titles did you win? Um, seven. Wow, the, uh, that's amazing, isn't it? Seven British titles. You know, it's a lot of medals to be hanging up in the house. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <I know> exactly. <laughs> Have you got a spare room that you just put them in? 
I, you know, I'm so non-sentimental as well. I'm really bad. My wife goes crazy. I, I don't have my medals up. I don't have any memorabilia up. I have a little bit, as you can see behind us on the Zoom call here yeah. um, on the podcast. I've got a little bit of memorabilia, but it's not like in your face stuff. It's very subtle and yeah. um, just a reminder. You know, amazing things can happen if you ex- if you show extraordinary characteristics. Yeah, I get that. It's them little memories that sometimes make a bigger difference than seeing a medal hung up, isn't it? Yeah, so yeah, definitely. You won seven British titles, and then you have went to the Commonwealth Games. Yeah. Which, again, you know... What, what, so, you won the Commonwealth Games, Chris. Yeah. That's two, right. I won two gold medals there, 100 metres and 50, yeah. I mean, I've seen those medals. I've been fortunate to have yeah. you. One of the groups that I've been working with in the past, so I've seen those medals. They are, they're beautiful medals. Yeah. What was... What was it like? This is it a step up in competition, the Commonwealth, from what you were doing on a daily basis in Britain, anyway, on a weekly basis, or was it, or was the ex, what was the experience like? I suppose as well from the Commonwealth Games. You know, there is there is a lot of differences when you go to a competition. You know, one, you've got the lane to yourself. You don't have that all the time when you're in practice. Yeah, there's a lot of differences in your job when you're practicing, is to make the is to bring the competition in, is to make the environment so hard and so challenging that when you get to the competition, your brain's looking for the similarities. That's really, really key. So anything that any athletes are doing, if there's athletes listening to the podcast now, that's what your job is in your practice and your training is to make the unfamiliar familiar so that when the body and the mind goes out to compete, it goes no big deal. I've seen this. I've experienced this before. Yeah. So, but there's always going to be things that you go to. And I'll, t- I'll tell you a really quick story. There was once I turned up to the, um, turned up the British championships ready for the Olympic trials. Now me and my sports psychologist had been working together for about eight years before this one moment. And we'd always talked about at every trial, at every big meet, there's always a surprise that has the chance to knock you off guard. So because you know there's a surprise coming, you look for it. And when it comes, you go, there's a surprise, no big deal. So you're in control of trying to yeah, see. Yeah, definitely. It's a bit of a mind strategy. So gets there, first thing, walked in the door. And I didn't know, but they always used to choose a picture from the previous year of a swimmer, a British swimmer, and they would make them the kind of billboard person. Okay. So they would, it, would, it could be anything from them celebrating a gold medal at the previous champs to just racing through the water and there's a big splash. You can hardly tell who it is. Yeah. I walked in the door and like 30 foot by 30 foot picture right at the far end of me with kook written across the hat. So I couldn't say it's not me. (laughs) And I was like, oh my God. And my competitors were there waiting for us. And one of them went, look, you're on the billboard. You're on the big sign up there. You can't not make it now. And my heart started just pounding. Right. Okay. And it's those little things that in the moment you've got to really challenge yourself to bring yourself back. And that one phrase was, I know what the surprise is now. It's not going to catch us out. Yeah. Cause I am the surprise. Got... <laughs> yeah. I am the surprise. Yeah. yeah. Now, see, now, got on. My mentality, I would have used that picture against everybody else. <laughs> Brilliant. There's That's my mentality. I would have, I would have personally, cause that was just the way I would have worked. I would have just said, there's me. That's who you've got to beat. <laughs> That's who you've got to beat. I'm the, I'm the yeah. poster boy. So yeah. if you're coming for this tournament, I'm the person you've got to beat. Brilliant! I so love you it. There's better swim your best race. That would just that would be my strategy. Uh, yeah. um, but it's funny how when you talk to different people and athletes, 
around the little trigger point. I love, and I'm sure there's so many people listening to this, especially young people who are training in in various different sports or or want to be professional athletes who can just take that piece of advice. Because I know straight away I've took that away and thought, look for the surprise. I think that's an amazing piece of advice that you can give people. Always there. Yeah, Always there. It's absolutely fantastic. I, I really, really like that one. I'm, I'm going to use that in the future myself. So I'm preaching that one, Chris. Permanently <laughs> <laughs> borrow, permanently borrow. Go for it. I love that. Um, so you, you've you've qualified for the Olympic team. How did you get on the Europeans? You mentioned the Europeans were about six months before before Athens. So how yeah. did that go with the Europeans? That was an interesting one because they only allowed two British athletes through to the final. Okay. So you can you can send I think you can send four to the Europeans or three to the Europeans, but only two can qualify through, so you don't get a full sweep on the podium for right, second okay. and third. So there's a bit of a challenge there. And I finished third out of the British crowd, but oh, right. I finished fifth overall or right. sixth overall. So I was pushed out of the final. Okay. But again, you know, me and my coach sat down, we were like, I if you look at it black and white, you should have been in that final. That's a really yeah. good step forward. So there's always something you can take from performances, even the down ones where you can just say, hang on, we're on track. That's okay, we're on track. Yeah, no, that's um, great. So that, that was a big key one. I think a lot of people don't realise, you know, you see some of the sports where you maybe only see somebody compete once or twice a year. I think about boxing and they get beaten. People write careers off, but, you know, actually, in reality, the sport that you do, the sport you're competing on a weekly basis. So one one poor performance doesn't define a career, and it doesn't it doesn't mean that for the next race you're not going to be better. And I think some people get lost in that with today's society. Absolutely. In fact, invariably, what ends up happening if you learn from your mistakes, or you take failure as a message to do things different next time, or you take a part of the race and you break it down, or you part of your performance and just break it down. There's always what went well and what what could be even better in everything. Yeah, even a world record holder, you know, I'm sure Michael Phelps when he won eighth gold eight gold medals and seven world records thought, oh, I wonder if I could have got that eighth world record. You know, there's yeah, all yeah. of that even better if that's what got you there. Yeah. The, the important thing is not to stay there. The important thing is just to use it as a tool. It's a tool to use, not a tool to live with all the time. Yeah. So you've you've done the Europeans and then you head to the Olympics yeah. just touch on that experience tell us what that was like that was amazing absolutely incredible you know Athens 2004 went into the Olympics very little experience of international swimming just little bits and pieces I'd gone to a world student Games, so I'd, I'd understood what the difference between a games and a championships were you know a games you get the chance to all be in, an, in a village um, with other sports a multi-sport festival where yeah. Your world champs is just swimming, or it's just athletics on its yeah. own. You're in a hotel; it's quite fluffy. Um, whereas going to a games is a very different experience. I realised I'd arrived somewhere, arrived in a place where it was going to be extraordinary. And pinch yourself moment. You know, I remember walking around the Olympic Village, just seeing the world's best stars. You know, watching Rafael Nadal and um, Roger Federer have lunch together in the canteen, like wow. meters away, thinking. This is not happening. This is not real. <laughs> you know, those things just happen regularly. You know, I remember meeting Pele in a wow. queue, just he was two meters behind and all this commotion. And I looked behind, he was stood behind us, like, oh my God, it's Pele. What the heck? Oh my goodness. You know, these things are happening over that three or four week period. And then you've got to go out and perform. So the first Olympics was just every moment, it's like, oh my God, what's going to happen next? What's going to yeah. happen next? Um, I can imagine. 
just walking out to their semi-final and walking out the races was just the best feeling. They, they timed the, the finals and the semi-finals for the sun going down in Greece. Wow. And as the sun went down, it all, you know, beautiful pink-purple sky as the sun's going down and the lights start to warm up. And I can, I can go there now in my mind's eye. It was just a magical experience. And I sat in the crowds one day and it was about four days into it. And one of my friends, another swimmer, turned and said, look there. And he pointed to the crowd and there was about 20,000 people in this crowd packed. And he went, everyone on that side of the fence wanted to be on this side of the fence. How do you feel? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, it is. It's true, isn't it? And it's just like all of a sudden I just like thought to myself, that is extraordinary. It is. It's How did he get on at the 2004 Olympics? Really well, actually. Um, I finished in the semi. I got through the semi-finals and then two hundred meters breaststroke, and really secured a, a good, solid foundation for what was about to happen next in my career. And that was what we went forwards. Yes, we were going for medals. Absolutely, that's what you work towards. But also, we had an eye on how do you move the performance on, and how does it feed into the next four years. And so it was a it was a big tick in the box, a job done because that wasn't my number one event. My number one event was the hundred meters breaststroke. So. Going for the 200 was just a, a bonus, if you like. No, that's absolutely... I mean, do you feel that the... Did you get caught up in the occasion at the Olympics for your first Olympics? Was it... You're talking about, you know, you're seeing Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal having looks like a penis yeah. behind you. It, would that be... I'm not saying you did or, or, or if you did or not. Did you see other people maybe as well getting caught yeah. up in, in the event and yeah. in, in, in the whole the atmosphere of it all and it maybe affected performance? It makes or breaks people. It, it didn't with me. I didn't get distracted. You know, you've got plenty of time to go around and watch other events and yeah. do other things. You get a free pass to go into any event that you want to go to. Wow. So in Beijing, I got to watch the 100 metres with Usain Bolt, virtually on the finish line, stood there, wow. just metres away watching history being created. Then we moved on to the, the velodrome, watched the cycling, watched some incredible medal halls. Just wow. the, the, the atmosphere was just electric. Um, but yeah, you can see that, and that's why we, um, you can see people get affected, and that's why we run that program in Team GB, the, the ambition program. And it's really well supported and funded by the sponsors because we take the next generation to the previous Olympics. And a lot of the structure around that is not about competing, it's about learning what does the environment entail and how will you thrive, not just survive in it, yeah. how are you going to thrive in it? And it gives it gives those athletes food for thought and a four-year plan. Oh, and it must be a massive opportunity to see people train, see people compete. And no. just what you're talking about, the surprise, is there anything that these people do when they train? What's the surprise? Well, actually, I know what they do now. I need to go away and I need to do that even better. Lizzie Arnold, um, who won a gold medal in the, is Bob Skelton. Yeah. She was at the 2012 Olympics. She was part of a group that I was working with called the Ambition Programme in London. So we took 300-something wow. athletes because it was home, the home games. We didn't have to pay for flights or anything yeah. like that. It was a lot cheaper. So we ramped up the numbers, took more to the games. She was one of them. Two years later, she pops up at Sochi. Bang, gold medal. Uh, my little girl loves Lizzie Arnold. Oh, she's a phenomenal girl. She but is. She's a phenomenal athlete. And she, yeah. you know, she's, she's a great person. And... To watch her go and do that after watching her just absorb everything at the 2012 Olympics. And she was just front row, notepad, asking questions, wow. you know, just trying to get as much as she could. And you think that when she went to Sochi, I wonder how much of that added to that journey. 
Oh, do you see people who go on these ambition programs and you've mentioned Lizzie there the fact she's taken notes she's obviously stood out and yeah. she's you know she's already going she's not here for the experience she is here to literally mentally take notes write them down and, and you know she's probably going to be a success because of the work she's doing and then do you see other people who you, you realise they're probably not going to make it even though we've got them here at the moment yeah, you definitely see the attitude shift um, in people, and and a lot of it comes from the culture that they have within their own coaching setup, how their coach acts, how they act, how they're led, um, their leadership. But yeah, you do you see people come just for either the holiday, or you realise that those athletes are really super talented, and they're leaning on the talent. It's the talent that's getting them there. Yeah, that only takes you so far. It's got to be hard work as well, hasn't it? Absolutely. And it's got to have an attitude and a different focus. If you want to win medals, you don't do it off talent alone. You, there's something special that you have to create and bring to the surface. And, and yeah, you do see it in athletes. I saw it in Lizzie straight away. I saw it in her. And it, all of us who were running the program just said there's something special about her. There was a, a few others as well. Of course, yeah. And a few of the hockey girls came on who went, went on to win gold in Rio. Yeah. And you could just see that there's a look behind their eye that I can't put my finger on, but just the way they conducted themselves, how they acted, how they, the attributes that they, they showed on a daily basis just it just oozed gold medal winning status. And that's, that's what amazing. they did. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, and that's amazing. And, and they're so fortunate to have that that experience available to them to be able to go and do this. And as you say, it probably does separate the, the winners from those who aren't going to go on and achieve maybe the, the, what the talent should allow them to achieve <laughs> yeah exactly yeah um so you've you've done the, the olympics in 2004 what was the next goals after the 2004 olympics so we had the world champs coming up very next year and um i hadn't pre-qualified for those games so uh, for those championships sometimes you can pre-qualify with your results from your previous championships or games okay. They didn't run a pre-qualification because it was the start of a new four-year cycle. Right. So I had to race really hard to get into that team. It wasn't that easy. And they took a really small team to Montreal. And I had the performance of my life. Um, I got into the final of the men's 100 metres breaststroke and I finished fifth at the World Champs. And I was gutted. And I was doing really well in the race until a certain point and it just, it just didn't work out. But what, what, when we came out that race, me and my coach sat down and we worked out that that was the fastest men's 100 metres breaststroke final in history. Wow. And suddenly, all of a sudden, sat up and thought, I was one of five of that. I was one of eight, but I was in yeah. the top five top in five, that. Yeah. That's moving in the right direction. And, and it was it, the disappointment of the, the race subsided. And all of a sudden, I started to analyse the, the race properly. And that, that led me on to the next, two, next year, which was the Commonwealth Games, where I won two gold medals. And it was the confidence from the the world champs and the experience from the olympics which just it just helped me catch up and walk out there and just own it yeah and just own it own it all and, and i say that to athletes when i'm working with them even businessmen you know take the handbrake off take the handbrake off and let's just go for it and and if, if you keep going for it and you get enough evidence you'll realize there was never a handbrake in the first place <laughs> yeah yeah thing you we sometimes are yeah our own barriers aren't we we create our own barriers and we're afraid to try and do something well actually just give it a go because you'll only learn a way not to do something yeah and, and failure is never fatal it's rarely fatal yeah it's rarely fatal it's always just an opportunity to get back up and you know i said on a podcast not so long ago i don't know if i've made this up i heard it somewhere but i'm robbing it permanently boring <laughs> i said no, failure is finding a an individual learning or lesson 
uncomfortable yet really essential failure the acronym yeah and it, and it, and it is it's really essential yeah, yeah it's really essential to take those personal lessons and actually take them forward so then the the next cycle was to go to the next world champs and then ultimately i knew my last event was the olympic games in beijing wow and that rounded off my career so how, how did it um because i know that you've you've won medals at the world championships so when was that so that was in 2006 on my way home from the Commonwealth Games um, in China and Shanghai. Um, I actually, weirdly, I had a, a race off to get into the final. So I was joined eighth with someone. So there's only eight people allowed in the final. So yeah. I got through the seats into the semi-final, into the, into the um, swim-off joint place. So I had to swim off to get back in the final. Um, managed to scrape in an eighth position, won the swim off. I've ne- that's one of the things I'm really proud of in all my time. I've never won, I never lost a swim off, never. Wow, Even when I was good. like 11, yeah. I know I love that. <laughs> I was, if, you, if you go up against us, you're not going to win. That's all I yeah. used to say. <laughs> I, I love that. I love that mentality. Um, got in the final and from lane eight, won a bronze medal. I'm really proud of that one. Oh, I bet yeah. you are as well. Bronze medal at the World Championships is absolutely amazing. <laughs> yeah. who, who won that one? Oh, I, I think it was a Japanese swimmer called Kasuke Kitajima. He was a wow. he was Don the Emperor. Um, he wow. he um, he reigned for quite a while over the sport, over breaststroke anyway. A bit of an unsung hero. Um, if it wasn't for Phelps, I think he would have been quite a, a household name. Actually, really, really wow. Won gold medals over 100 and 200 over two Olympic Games, which is extraordinary. Yeah, that's fantastic, isn't it? So, you, you, you know, you come third in an absolutely tremendous lineup, didn't you? That's a, yeah. a, a third. How did you feel after winning the third place at a, at a World Championships? Oh, it, was, it was brilliant. It, I think because I was on a high from the Commonwealth, coming back and flying through Shanghai and then coming on home, I, 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 was, I was coming home with a lot of medals. <laughs> oh, wow. Two golds from um, from Melbourne and a silver, won a silver as well, and then wow. went to the World Champs, won a bronze, and just it just felt great. When I got off the plane at Newcastle and I come, come home, loads of people turned up to see us, and oh, um, wow. what was really weird was I had this really horrendous flight on the way home, like the worst ever. We'd flown through or past the edge of a typhoon. Oh, wow. um, <laughs> oh my it, goodness! Couldn't yeah. avoid it. So, <laughs> the cabin staff were like, listen, it's going to get a bit bumpy. Seven hours later, it was still bumpy. We were still oh, in wow. Oh, my goodness. So I come off the plane, landed in Newcastle, just shook up with all these medals. Having to face the media. And I, was, I put a really good game face on, but I watched the interview not so long ago, and I am just pasty white. <laughs> I love that. I love that. That's brilliant. And I, did it, it sort of, did it make you feel good, the sense that you, you know, you'd, you'd been accustomed to being a British title winner? You've then went on and you've got international status by winning the Commonwealth Games, and then you've also went to the World Championships as well. You know, this hasn't been a fluke. This is something that the process has worked, and you, you can now go, well, actually, I haven't just won one medal. I've won two here, a silver, and then I've won a bronze medal at the World Championships. I've already qualified for an Olympics, and I've qualified for the 2008 Olympics as well. Success leaves clues, Andy. It does. It leaves clues. So if you're successful, it's, it's, it's seldom by accident. It's rarely accidental. Yeah. It's usually by design, and that's what I say to people. Instead of going out finding results, create them. And how you start to create them is if you work on the person you are and the character you are, you start to attract success. That's what you do. You don't chase success. You attract it. 
you change those characteristics to meet the demand and the challenge of what's about to happen. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you take on the challenge in a completely different way and you attract that success. And no, it's, it worked for me and it's still working for me now. Fantastic. So go on, tell us about 2008, the, your final bow. Yeah, so last race was the Olympic final. Obviously, I, wow. I didn't swim as well as I wanted to do in the, the individual, but in four days, I turned it around. And I must be honest, going from the heartache of, of realising that the Olympic gold medal had gone, that I, I wasn't going to get a gold medal, and then all of a sudden getting the chance to go in in the relay, you know, those four days, I employed every single skill I'd learned from the age of nine right through to that was 29 at that moment. Yeah. And that was hard. It was it it was hard to slide the emotions to one side and allow logic to take over. But it's doable. It is doable. And I'm really proud of that because I've got a blueprint now. And moments like that make what we're going through now, like COVID, seem like a walk in the park, I'll be honest with you. It does. You know, <laughs> yeah. One of the challenges I have faced, I've realized that actually you can rise above them if you choose to. Um, and that's a really empowering blueprint to have. And I think sport is such a beautiful example of that. And I always advocate kids get involved in sport because it teaches you a lot about the ups and downs of life. And I agree. you get practically, you get do it in a practical way, apply it and not just bump your gums and talk about it, but get out there and physically do it. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a great lesson for any youngsters is, you know, that you might have a pile of medals hanging around your neck when you leave, but the real goal you've got is the person you become. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. As I say, you can reflect on medals and they might open some doors for you and you can see you've done this and the what's the experiences you get from that and, and what you yeah. take away from the journey to apply to, to apply to life after sport, which kind of t brings us in nicely to what have you been doing since you retired? Oh, well, that's <laughs> what haven't you done? I know, exactly. That's part of where we met, really, wasn't it? It was, was, yes. Motivational talks to your gang, your group. Yeah. Um, and I started off doing some motivational speaking. Wasn't very good, I'll be honest with you. I started off a bit ropey um, and just slowly but surely got a little bit better and better and eventually went on to speak to, you know, I've spoken to nearly half a million people in, wow. in the time I've been trotting around. Um, you know, some days I'd be speaking to audiences of 3,000 at the Sage or 1,000 in the Sage, whatever, and then onto a primary school of like 50 in a little village somewhere tucked away you know um and you know but every time I got out there and I shared my story or I did a workshop or talked about resilience or changing mindset and picking the right mindset what I was actually doing was I was giving myself a bit of therapy it was yeah. hard even, it was hard leaving sport you know I lost a lot and I was in a real sacrifice mindset for a long time until I realized what I was gaining by moving away from the sport and doing something different. I think my big lesson in moving away from swimming was that I needed to learn to start again. Yeah. Um, and I'm not frightened to now. I was frightened then. I was scared and I was running away from something. Now I faced it head on and I'm not frightened to start again. I'm not frightened to look foolish. I'm not frightened to look like I don't know what I'm doing because sometimes I don't. I'm going to be honest with you, I don't. <laughs> That's I'm me on podcasting, Chris. That's me on podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> me too. But if people find value in it, you get evidence and then you grow it and you grow your confidence. You think, oh, well, one person likes it, two will like it, two like it, ten will like it. Yeah. Um, I then started coaching and mentoring, working with people online, one-to-one, -one, very bits and pieces. 
and I've set up my own learn to swim business and we've got nearly a thousand kids, not at the moment, obviously yeah, swimming great. with us. Um, but once we're out of COVID, hopefully we can get back on cracking with teaching as many young kids around Teesside as possible where I now live. Um, and you know, life's never felt, never, like never felt better, even though we're going through a tricky time. I've always got an optimism about us now, not necessarily a positivity because yeah. you can't be positive all the time. No, you can't. You can definitely be optimistic because nothing lasts forever. Yeah, I agree. That's what I'd say about the current situation. You know, I've lost, I lost my income from two businesses and me being a business owner, I couldn't furlough myself. Yeah. Um, so I had no other option but to diversify. And, you know, I've, I've learned in my time that change has got very little to do with capability and more to do with your motivation. Yeah. You know, before I'll give you an example for that. Before COVID, I resisted going online with me with my courses and doing me coaching, me want mentoring. Yeah. COVID's pushed me to the point where that's the only option. So I've yeah. gone, well, I either want to do this or not. It's probably yeah. the same with your podcasts, you know. it drove me to start a podcast. I'd been talking about it and now because I've got a little bit extra time where I'm sat in the house and because I am failed from my company, yeah. I am I thought, why not just give it a go? Um, and I'm so fortunate it. to have people like you come on it. Oh, perfect. And that, that's, it wasn't because you couldn't do it. It's because you had other things that were motivating you. Yeah. And that's what I say to people. Change. You just have to find what is your motive for action? What's your motivation? Because that's what motivation is. What's yeah. your motive? What's your reason? Find your reason and you'll start finding your path. 100%. Um, so, yeah, I'm a business owner now and it's a very different, very different lifestyle. I've got kids, I've got two kids and, you know, life's very different. I've got very different, um, I've got very different sort of motivations, but I just live by the fact that, you know, you can't shrink your way to success. No matter what you're going through, you've got to expand. Yeah. You've got to expand. You can't shrink your way there. And the, you know, the pace of change that we're all facing now is not going to get slower. If no. people are trying to control change at the pace of it, <laughs> you're fighting the losing battle. You've got to yeah. go with it. Yeah, I agree. And you've got to be prepared to be agile. I'm a massive believer in being agile and, and being able to move and mobilize yourself when things get tough. So suppose it, it's all, it's actually flowed really nice this quiz and, and you've talked about your businesses. What's your aspirations now? We've talked about being always being motivated or motivated for the next challenge. What's your aspirations? So what's your aspirations with the swimming school that you have? So we, we initially we've got a thousand in our head that we want to get to nearly that we want to get to a thousand we're nearly there, yeah. thousand children. We never thought we'd be here in five years. We thought it would take ten. Okay. And half the time we've we've virtually got there. There's a few challenges around that um, that I've got to face, which is I'm now seeing more children going out because we graduate more naturally if you teach yeah. more. So for every ten that leave, I've got to get ten more and plus if I want to grow. Yes. So we've got a few challenges around that. So grow the business. I would love to um, grow the team as well. I've, you know, I'd like to grow the team to 10 teachers. There's only eight of us at the moment. I want right. another two, but I was, I'll be honest with you. I think I grew too quick at one stage with the wrong people. Okay. Um, got to get the right people in the right position yeah. in the right role. And I grew too quick. I was after the numbers too much. And now yeah. I want to work with the right people. Yeah, I'd rather skip half the number of the kids. quality over quantity, isn't it? Sometimes, hundred percent, and yeah. that brought a stress managing people that just weren't in line with our values. Yeah. Um, and then me, me own business, me Chris Coop Limited, one that I do yeah. a lot of speaking and mentoring. You know, I want to reach a wider audience, and I want to get out there and work with people who 
I want to work with the willing. You know, yeah. I want to work with someone who just doesn't know what the next piece of the jigsaw is. I want to help them yeah. and find it for them, but they've got to be willing. You know, I'm not, I'm not interested in working with people who aren't willing anymore. I've, I've, I've done that and it's a pushing a piece of string. Uphill. I get that. People have got to meet you halfway, haven't they? They have. Totally so you're agree. in the team, you pull in the right direction. Well, if not, let's have a conversation about which team you need to join because yeah, it's not of course. this one. And, no, and I agree. And I don't think that's a bad mindset at all. I think, you know, there's far too many people want to be spoon-fed. Um, yeah, but actually, yeah. people, are, people are so willing to help you as long as you're willing to meet them halfway. 100%. I remember calling someone up and just asking for their advice about business thinking, I'm going to get a flat-out no, and they were like, yeah. And this is a person who's reasonably well-known in the media. I wouldn't want yeah. to say who it is. But and the reasonably well known, I was thinking, I'm not going to get a chance with this person. Yeah. No way. And they went, yeah, no problem. Nobody ever asks. <laughs> and I was like, oh if you God. don't ask, you don't get, do you? Exactly. And I was sitting with this person, going, well, how did you do this? How did you do that? And I, I squeezed that hour out of that that that, yeah. that moment and got everything I needed. But in in terms of me personal business, is stretching that audience, and then my personal goals with my family is just to spend more time. You know, I believe that kids spell love T I M E. Yeah. That's how they spell love, time with them. And just going on another adventure, you know, we've got photographs around the house and it's only when you take stock and you go, oh my God, that was a brilliant trip that we did there. Or do you remember that time we just jumped in the car and did this? You know, you should never lose sight of that. Even though you want extraordinary things, you should never lose track of like why you're doing it in the first place. And yeah, just, I feel really blessed. I genuinely feel blessed. And I feel like I've, um, I feel like I'm walking alongside something that's bigger than me at times, you know, something non-physical, yeah. I'll be honest. Wow. And I don't know what that is. I'm not yeah, yeah, of course. religious and I've no, I'm, not, I'm not professing to know, but I definitely think at times I just feel connected to something that's non-physical. Um, wow. And I rely on that at times. I sometimes throw it up there and say, please help me with this yeah. decision. <laughs> you know, please help me get through this. Show me a way. And, and you know what? Often, bang, a way just comes, a way just happens um so i'm a massive believer in the non-physical mate yeah right i love that it's it's nice to know it's probably you that's creating that but if it's working for you as well which is it's what you were talking about having that motivation and so i I love that mindset it's fantastic chris thank you so much for coming on the show today it's been an absolute pleasure and going back to what you're saying if you don't ask you don't get a lot of people i said i was going to be speaking to an olympic swimmer former olympian how you manage that and i said because i asked (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I just asked all you could have said was no but I am honestly so grateful for you coming on to the podcast today oh, thank you ever so much for the chance thank you for listening to another episode of Hobby of a Lifestyle hope you've enjoyed the show and we look forward to seeing you next time stay safe